Hi, my name is Jeff Redding. I'm a preaching elder here at Walton Community Church in Monroe, Georgia. Before we begin the sermon, our church would like to invite you to join us as we gather every Sunday morning for worship at 10 a.m. You can learn more about our church on our website at waltoncommunitychurch.org. Thanks for listening. All right, good morning, WCC. It's wonderful to see everybody. I do want to say go Braves. That was awesome last night. Boom, 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 boom. Uh, my shirt, by the way, is Braves blue. This is not Dodgers blue, okay? This is Braves blue today. Uh, one thing I did want, and also, by the way, I'm from, there we go. I'm from uh, Texas, but I hate the Astros more than any other team, so I would definitely be rooting for the Braves. Um, I do want to say as, as uh, the announcements, we've talked about the men's prayer time. I think it's November 6th. Guys, I would encourage you to be there. I think we may get some breakfast there. I'll be there, so uh, try to make that on that prayer time. I think it's at 8 a.m. Well, last week we began a sermon series going through the book of Hebrews, so if you have your Bibles, uh, turn with me to Hebrews chapter 1. If you have your Bible on your app or whatever, turn to Hebrews chapter 1. And as you're turning, let me just say this, that I talked about this last week, the theme of Hebrews is this, that real faith is a persevering faith, that genuine faith in Jesus Christ is a faith that lasts until the end. And the author of Hebrews is encouraging us to persevere in our faith. And he's, what he's saying is you must continue in your faith or you never really had saving faith. So that's what Hebrews is all about, the necessity of a persevering faith. And the author of Hebrews starts out his argument by saying, you must hold fast to Jesus, and he starts giving us reasons, and it's because Jesus is greater than anything else. Jesus is, we'll see today, that, that Hebrews begins by talking about these magnificent words about how awesome Jesus is, how Jesus is God, how he's greater than the angels, how he's greater than Moses. So if, let's look at Hebrews 1, and we'll just look at the first three verses today, but these these are these huge verses. They kind of remind me of John 1, these just magnificent verses about Jesus. So this is Hebrews 1, and we'll read 1 through 3. It says, Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world." He's the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. And that's what we're going to look at today, all right? So the first two verses, it says, long ago at many times in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. He says, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. So The writer of Hebrews is saying, in the past, that is, before the birth of Christ, God spoke to the Jewish people through the prophets. God is the one who reveals, and God decided to reveal himself to the Jewish people, to Israel, and not to any other nation. And if you're wondering, just as an aside, the nation of Israel, I used to think it was just out in the boonies, but if you think about why God picked Israel in that area, think about it. How many places, that place is the intersection of three continents. Europe, Asia, and Africa. How many places in the world are the intersection of three continents? That's it. There was a reason God chose that area. So God revealed himself to Israel, and God revealed truth. And if God does not reveal, if he does not disclose truth, we would know very little about him. 
He has to reveal who he is, especially his plan of salvation. So God is the source of truth, and it says right here that he used the prophets in the Old Testament to make his word known. So God spoke, it says, at many times and in various ways. There were many prophets in the Old Testament. They received God's revelation, and those revelations were then written down, recorded in the books of the Old Testament, in the books of Moses, Psalms of David, the historical books, the major and minor prophets, all those, wisdom literature, all that is composed of the Old Testament. And God's revealed his truth through these prophets. So God filled the prophets with his spirit to communicate his word. And this is important. The prophet did not make up his own message. His job was to say, thus saith the Lord. He speaks God's word. And so he was inspired by the Holy Spirit. Each prophet was inspired by the Holy Spirit, and he spoke God's words. Then verse 2, it says, But in these last days, God has spoken to us by his Son. So these last days, that's an important phrase. It shows that we are now in a new period of time. We're now in the days of the Messiah. The last days began with the coming of Jesus. The last days began with Christ. And we're still in those last days. We're in the days of the Messiah. Also, the writer of, the, of Hebrews is showing that there is a continuity between the Old Testament and the New Testament. New Testament is fulfilling what was prophesied about in the Old Testament, but there is a continuity. And the reason there's a continuity is because it's the same God. There's not a God of the Old Testament and then a different God of the New Testament. And some people think that, that there's not a God of the Old Testament who's cruel and mean and nasty, and then the God of the New Testament is kind and gracious. No, it's the same God. It's the same holy God. He's the God who revealed himself, as I said, in the Old Testament through the prophets, and now he reveals himself through the Son, the Lord Jesus. God who spoke in the Old Old Testament, again, is the same God. And the writer of Hebrews is showing that as wonderful as the prophets of the Old Testament were, as wonderful as Moses was, as wonderful as David was, the Son of God surpasses them all. The Son is greater. The Son, the Lord Jesus, is so much better because, as we'll see, Jesus is God himself. He is God. So in the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets. Now God has spoken in a new way. The prophets were servants, but now God has sent his Son. And because God has spoken through his Son, that means God has spoken his final word. He can't give anything better than his Son. The Son, the Lord Jesus, is the final word from God. And because Jesus is the final word, I really don't like hearing someone say, God has given me a new revelation, all right? The canon is closed. If you say, if you say God has given me a new revelation, you're going to get my frowny face, all right? Because God has given us, God has given us the final word in Jesus Christ. God the Father has sent his Son, and God is saying, listen to my Son, He's the final word. And it says, continuing in verse 2, it says, His son, whom he appointed the heir of all things. Now the, the writer to the Hebrews is describing the son. And he begins by saying, he appointed the son, the heir of all things. So Jesus is the son, and he is the heir of all things. He, he inherits everything. In the ancient world, the son was the one who had the right to inherit the father's property, the father's estate. 
So Jesus is the heir of God the Father's estate. And what does the text say? What does the Father's estate, what does God the Father's estate consist of? A 401k? A little house with a piece of property? No, it says all things. He inherits all things. Jesus owns all things. That's what the writer's saying here. Jesus said the same thing in Matthew 28, 18. The Great Commission. He says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So all authority has been given to Jesus. He is the heir of all things. He owns the universe. It all belongs to him. All things are under his authority and his control. He is the son. And as the son of the father, Jesus owns everything. I want you to begin having a huge picture of Jesus. We need this as the church. Then it says, continuing in verse 2, it says, Through whom also he created the world. The, 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 every, that means, again, that word world is not just cosmos. It means everything I'll talk about. It means even history. Okay? So this refers, though, to the creation account in Genesis. God created the world, the universe. And look what it says. It says, through the Son, through whom he created the world. That means he, he created, God the Father created the world through the Son's power. We can't understand everything that means. I don't know what all that means. But we do know that the Son of God was present at creation because he has always existed. He's God. He's the sovereign Lord of all things. We tend to think of Jesus only as Savior. We tend to think of Christ as only a Savior. But Jesus is God the Son. He's eternal and Jesus created everything. So that means he owns everything and he made everything. In Colossians 1.16, Paul says something similar. He says, all things were created through Jesus and for him. All things were made through Christ and for Christ. That means that every atom in this universe was created by Jesus, the Son, who is God the creator. Every invisible thing was created created by Jesus. Every visible thing, every molecule, every spiritual being, angels and demons, was created by Jesus. Every plant, every animal, every person was created by the Son of God. You were created by the Son of God. He made you. So Jesus not only created the universe, he's also the sovereign Lord over all history. That's implied here in this passage in Hebrews. He's the sovereign Lord over all history. Jesus is the Lord over history. History has an end point. History is not just a random happening of random events. History has an end point. It has a destination where everything is going. There is a purpose in history. And the Son of God is Lord over history. History is headed towards its fulfillment in the direction the Son of God wants it to go. Everything was made by Jesus and everything was made for him for, for him, for his glory, for his exaltation, and for his praise. You and I were made for his glory, to be in relationship with him, to love him, and to exalt him. That's what we were made for. Then verse 3, it says, these amazing verses, these are just huge verses. It says, verse 3, he is the radiance, Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Let's think about what the writer's saying here. It says, Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God. God's glory is often pictured as light. 
So in the Old Testament, the light, you'd see this huge light where God was. His presence was there. They called it the Shekinah glory, this bright light shining. Jesus said that he's the light of the world, right? In him, there is no darkness. And Jesus radiates the light of God's majesty and perfection. As the Apostle John writes in John 1.14, he says, We have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son, from the Father, full of grace and truth. So Jesus is the radiance of God's glory. So when you see Jesus, what you're seeing is God's majesty revealed, God's glory revealed. But now think about this, okay? Could you say that any mere human is the radiance of the glory of God? Could you say that a mere creature is God's radiance manifested? No. In fact, when mere humans came into contact with the full radiance of God's glory, it was a scary thing because they didn't survive it. Listen to this. This is, this is Exodus 33. You, remember, you may remember this account, Exodus 33:18. 18. Moses has a request of God, and he says this. Moses said to God, please show me your glory. And God didn't say, okay, great. No, God said, you cannot see my glory and live. You cannot see my face and live. God said, I will hide you in the cleft of the rock. I will pass by you. You'll see my backside, sort of the wake, like when a boat goes back, you'll kind of see the wake of it. But you cannot see God's unveiled glory. It, it, it's like, uh, it, 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 it would be like this. It'd be like Moses asking, hey, I would like to walk on the surface of a star, okay? Or walk on the surface of the sun. You can't do that. Because we are sinful creatures, God is holy and magnificent. Even the angels without sin have to cover their faces in his presence. And we as sinful creatures cannot even be in the presence of God's unveiled glory because we will perish. Okay, But it says that Jesus is the radiance of God's glory. That means Jesus is no mere human. That's what the author of Hebrews is making very clear, that Jesus is no mere creature. And then he goes on to say, he says, Jesus is not only the radiance of the glory of God, he is the exact imprint of God's nature. So his nature, in Jesus' nature, is the exact imprint of God the Father. The the Greek word there is character, imprint, character, we get the word character. He's the character of God. So the picture, the character, imprint, The picture is this, a king would often have a signet ring with this embedded thing in it showing his seal, and he would take, if he issued an official order or decree, they would seal it up, and no one could open it unless they had authority to to do so, and then the king would take the signet ring and get some wax and push his seal into the wax seal. So that's what this is. Jesus is the exact representation or the exact imprint of God the Father, okay? So he's saying that he is exactly like God in his nature. He's not sort of like God. He's not almost God. It says Jesus in his nature is the exact representation of God in his being, in his nature, okay? So, so I would ask you again the same question. Could you say that any mere human is the exact representation of God's nature? Could you say that any mere human is the exact imprint of God's nature? Well, what is God's nature? God's nature is things like this. He is infinite. He is eternal. 
Can you say about a mere human being that he is eternal or infinite? He's existed for all time, even before creation? Could you say that? No. So again, what the author of Hebrews is saying is that Jesus has the exact same nature as the Father. He's the exact imprint. He's eternal. He's infinite. Now, what's so beautiful about this is the writer of Hebrews is showing us that although the Father and the Son are the exact same nature, there is a distinction between the persons of the Father and the Son. So God is three persons. God is not one person. God is three persons. He is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And many heresies have taught that God consists of only one person. So there's one heresy that says God just revealed himself as one person, revealed himself in the Old Testament as Father. During the time of Jesus, he revealed himself as Jesus. And then God reveals himself now after Pentecost as the Holy Spirit. But it's only one person just revealing himself in different ways. That is not true. That is false. And what Hebrews is showing is that there is a distinction between the Father and between the Son. The Son is the exact imprint of God's nature and being, but the Son is distinct from the Father. So it was an early church heresy, and occasionally it pops up that, there's, that God is only one person, but you can see that the writer of the Hebrews is making a distinction. Another heresy in the early church said that Jesus was not divine, that he was just a creature. He was just an exalted man, an exalted prophet. I think it was Arianism. They said that, that this false teaching that Jesus was just a, a creature. But again, what you can see so clearly from this passage in Hebrews is that it teaches that Jesus is divine. He's God. He's in the same in substance, in nature, as the Father. He is equal to the Father in power and glory. It's not the Father's up here and then the Son is, is lesser, like a lesser God and less powerful or anything like that. No, the Son is equal in power and glory to the Father. That's why good catechisms like the Westminster Shorter Catechism, the Baptist Catechism, New City Catechism, they'll say things like this, and I sent this out in the email this week. The New City Catechism says this in question three, how many persons are there in God? And the answer is there are three persons in the one true and living God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And then it says they're the same in substance and equal in power and glory. That's exactly what we have in Hebrews 1. You can see the same thing in, in, uh, in John 1. I keep mentioning John. John and Colossians 1 are very similar to Hebrews 1. In John 1, 1, it says this, In the beginning was the Word. Think about this. In the beginning was the Word. Jesus is the Word. So in the beginning, Jesus was. He existed before time. Jesus is God. And it says, And the Word was with God. So the Word was with God. There is a distinction between the persons of the Father and Son. But then it says... John says the word was God. His exact substance, his exact nature as the Father in his being. Jesus is infinite, eternal, unchangeable. So Jesus is distinct from the Father in person, but in his nature and his being, he's God. He's divine. He's not just a creature. Now, now something I want to stress on this is I mentioned last week that the book of Hebrews was written before the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 A.D., and we know this because the writer makes no mention of the destruction of Jerusalem or the temple. He, he talks as if the temple and the sacrifices are still going on. And the temple and, and, and the destruction of the temple and the destruction of Jerusalem were these massive events. I mean, this was earth-shattering events. Even today, there are no sacrifices in the temple. All that ended. 
So the book of Hebrews was written before that, probably written in the 60s. So that also means that the book of Hebrews was only written a few decades after Jesus' crucifixion. Now here's why that's incredible. Because the author of Hebrews is writing to conservative, think about this, he's writing to conservative Orthodox Jews who came to faith in Jesus. And they came to believe that a carpenter from Nazareth was God in the flesh. Okay? Orthodox conservative Jews came to believe that Jesus is God. They came to believe that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. Now, if you're not a Christian, I'd ask you to think about this. How long does it take for conservative Orthodox Jews to change even a small part of their belief? It takes centuries to change even a small portion of their belief for Orthodox conservative Jews. How long does it take for an Orthodox conservative Jew to change some massive system of belief? They don't change it. They don't change it at all. And yet what we see here is that even as early as 60 AD, it was an established belief in the church, including these Orthodox Jews who had become Christians, it was an established belief in the church that a carpenter from Nazareth was God in the flesh. This was way too early for a myth to develop. I've said this before, big myths take centuries to develop. But these Orthodox conservative Jews saw something that, make them, that made them radically change their beliefs, totally change their theology, and they saw something. You know what it was? What did they see? They saw Jesus raised from the dead. They saw the resurrected Jesus. Either they saw Jesus resurrected firsthand, or they heard firsthand eyewitness accounts testifying to the resurrected Jesus. To me, this is one of those amazing proofs of the resurrection of Jesus. If you're not a Christian, I would just ask you this. Could you imagine believing that Jesus has been, has been raised from the dead? Could you even imagine believing that historical fact? Well, if so, then like these original Jewish Christians, you could also believe that Jesus is God. Okay, so just, just think about that. All right, let's continue in verse 3. It says, and he upholds the universe. This is another amazing statement. Jesus upholds the universe by the word of his power. Jesus is God the Son. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. Again, this shows the divine power of the Son. He speaks, and by the word of his power, by his command, all things in the universe are sustained. Jesus has given the command for everything to hold together, and the creation obeys his command. His command is to uphold the universe, and he holds everything together by his powerful word, by his command. We see similar language again in Colossians. This is Colossians 1.17. It says that Jesus is before all things and in him all things hold together. Why do the laws of physics work? Because Jesus is holding everything together. He's sustaining everything. Why do the atoms in the universe not blow apart? Because Jesus is holding everything together, including your life. Jesus sustains your life. He holds you together. You're not in control. Jesus is. And if he let go of you, if he let go of me, if he did not sustain us for one second, we'd be finished. Each beat of your heart happens because Jesus, in his love and mercy, has decided to give you another heartbeat. Isn't that awesome? He's in control. He holds the entire universe together. He controls big things and he controls small things. Jesus holds all things together. He's the sovereign king over all 
creation. Every huge thing in the universe, every giant star, every massive galaxy that hurls across the universe, he's in control of that. And he's in control of the smallest particle of dust in this room. Here's one of my favorite quotes from Charles Spurgeon. I try to read this quote at least once a year. I think I've forgotten. I think it's been a while. Listen to what Spurgeon said. He said that I believe that every particle of dust that dances in the sunbeam does not move an atom more or less than God wishes. That every particle of spray that dashes against the steamboat has its orbit as well as the sun in the heavens. That the chaff from the hand of the winnower is steered as the stars in their courses. The creeping of an aphid, tiny little insect, over the rosebud is as much fixed as the march of the devastating pestilence. The fall of leaves from a poplar tree, just a leaf just falling down a tree, is as fully ordained as the tumbling of an avalanche. Jesus is the creator and sustainer. He's got it all under control. He upholds it all. He's the sovereign Lord over every single particle in the universe. And that means at least a couple of things. This is the application part. One, he's Lord. He's Lord, and you owe him your life. You owe him your obedience. You owe him your love. Jesus is to be first in your life. He's not going to settle for second or third place in your life. He has to be first. You must live for Jesus because he's Lord. Two, for those of us who have put our faith in Christ, it means this, that he controls all, and that means you can rest. You can stop worrying. He knows you better than you know yourself. He knows your situation. And he, he upholds the future, and he's got good plans for you. That means you can stop worrying. If we truly understand that Jesus is sovereign over everything, that he works everything for our good and his glory, if we truly believe that, would we ever be afraid? Would we ever be worried? Jesus has it all under control in his divine nature, in his, in his sovereignty. And we, we should not think of these things as just interest, interesting theological points so we can win a debate, right? No, Jesus is God. He upholds every molecule in the universe. These should be truths that we cling to. This should be our life. And knowing that this king of the universe loves me, loves you, and gave himself for me, and gave himself for you, this should be a constant source of comfort and praise and joy for us as God's people. But here's the thing. Here's the thing. Many of us don't live like that. We don't live like we really believe that Jesus controls everything. It says right here that Jesus upholds the universe by the word of his power. But many of us don't believe that. Now listen, I know that Christians get depressed. I myself have struggled with depression and anxiety. It's a part of life. So I'm not being condemning. I want to be sensitive to people who struggle with depression and anxiety. And I've preached on that before and I plan on doing so again. Also, I know... I'm transitioning here. I know that some people suffer from depression and anxiety due to things like brain chemistry and hormones and physical problems. So I don't want to minimize that at all. Those are real issues. And we need to be sensitive to that. And as we read just from Psalm 34, this is awesome. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted. That is so comforting and wonderful. 
Okay? So I'm not really speaking to, to one group, but I am speaking to a group of this. And I'm, again, I'm preaching to myself here. Many of us don't have like some of these issues, but we're still down and anxious a lot. We're depressed and worried. I think Christians generally are depressed and worried way too often. And it's caused by a false way of thinking. And for those folks, including me, here's what I want to say. Okay? I'm, again, I'm preaching to myself. Live out your faith. Truly believe what you say you believe. Live out your faith in Christ. Listen, there's a time to say Jesus is God. Jesus is the radiance of God's glory. He's the exact imprint of his nature. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. That means he can handle my problems at work, right? (laughs) He can handle my problems, something going on in my family. He has the power. He's controlling the universe. He keeps the universe together. He can turn my anxiety into joy. He can turn my shame into rest and joy. He can turn my financial problems into wisdom. He can get me a better job. He can get me contentment with what I have. Jesus upholds the universe by the word of his power. That means he can walk me through whatever I'm going through. For many of us at the first sign of trouble, we give up. We just quit. When any hardship comes our way or any, even any discomfort comes our way, many of us just curl up into a fetal position. And we say, why me? Why, why does this always happen to me? That's what we think. We look around. Oftentimes we look around searching for all the bad things in the world. We don't look for the good things to be thankful for. We look around and focus all the bad things in our lives. And we pout. We don't cling to the Lord. We isolate, we complain, we play the victim, and we want other people to feel sorry for us. Okay? Listen, stop. (laughs) Stop doing that. Again, I'm preaching to myself. Get your fanny up, go to the Lord, ask him to forgive you for your lack of faith. Do what you can do right now. Just do what you can do right now. Trust the Lord for the results and give praise to him. I remind myself of this all the time. Be obedient, right? Be obedient. Do your job. Trust Christ. Then joyfully and thankfully leave the results to him. Jesus upholds the universe by the word of his power. And he loves you. Christian, brother in Christ, sister in Christ. He loves you. He upholds everything and he loves you. Act like you believe it, right? Live your life like you actually believe this. Again, I'm preaching to myself. Stop doubting and worrying and being sad and act like you believe that Jesus has it under control. There's a time to act like a man of God or a woman of God and start saying this, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. There's a time to believe. And you know what? That time is right now. We give, again, we give up so easily. We quit so easily. We blame others. We feel sorry for ourselves so often. And we do all this, I think, really, because deep down we don't really believe that Jesus is the sovereign king of the universe. So we need this Hebrews 1 perspective. We need to develop the habit of seeing the world from this Hebrews 1 perspective, that Jesus is in control, that he's the creator and sustainer of all things, that he's the sovereign Lord over every molecule in the universe. That he controls all things and he's working all things for the good of his people, for us, 
and for his great glory. And to our non-Christian friends, let me say this, just being honest, I'm embarrassed often about how often we as Christians act. We often act like Jesus is weak and controls nothing. And I'm embarrassed about that, including me. We often act like practical atheists. We often act like we're doomed, like there's no good God in control. It's embarrassing, frankly, how we Christians often live like Jesus is weak and pitiful. It's embarrassing. As Christians, we need to be people who show through our lives that Jesus upholds all things by the word of his power. And that's my challenge. Let's live like that, okay? Let's live like that and and remind ourselves each other of this. I need to hear it. Tell me this. If you see me throwing a pity party, get in my face and tell me Jesus is the sovereign one who loves you. But to our non-Christian friends, I'm going to close with this. Here's the truth. This is also what Hebrews teaches. Despite the way we Christians often live, know this, that Jesus really is God in the flesh. And he is the one and only way to be saved. Eternal life is only found in a loving, trusting relationship with him. And he's calling you right now. He's calling you to turn away from your selfishness and your pleasure-seeking. Jesus is calling you to repent and turn away from that and turn to him. To turn away from that garbage. You know what you're doing. Turn away from it and turn to him in faith. To give up the controls of your life. To trust him. Trust that he's God. That he died as a substitute in the place of his people. He took upon himself the wrath that should have come to us. He did that for us. He has spoken through his son, the final word, Jesus. And no one comes to God, the Father, except through a loving relationship with Jesus Christ. So I would just ask you, if you're not a Christian, how are you going to respond to that? How are you going to respond to that? Come to the Lord Jesus. And here's what you'll find. Because you are loved by the Savior, you're loved by the King of the universe, who controls all things because of that, your life has meaning and purpose. And you'll come to know that there's a God who loves you. And he's been guiding you your whole life, even when you didn't know it. That's what I realized when I became a believer. That Jesus was guiding my whole life. And I didn't even know he was there, but he was there. He's been there with you, watching you in love. Upholding not only the universe, but upholding your life. And he'll continue upholding and sustaining you, even beyond the grave. Through all eternity. This is our Lord. This is King Jesus. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we love you. Thank you, Father, for sending your Son. Jesus, we thank you for being our King and our Savior. I do pray, God, I do pray that as your people, we would really live like we believe it, Jesus. Help us to live it out and know that you're in control and that you love your people. You're right here with us at all times. You are Emmanuel, God, with us. Jesus, you're good. For those who are not Christians, Holy Spirit, I do pray that you would break into their hearts, that they turn away from the filth that they're engaged in and turn to you, Jesus. And know the joy and know the, the forgiveness and love that you bring. Jesus, you're not only the transcendent God of the universe, you are the personal, intimate, loving Savior who cares about your people. We praise you and love you. Thank you for your word. I pray for the folks here today. Bless us, Lord. Let us be a church who really joyfully lives for you and we live lives of thankfulness and, 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 and obedience and joy. 
We love you, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.